Hi, I'm Michaela McGuirk-Scalaro and you're listening to City Road. The 2023 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fascinating panel discussions that confront the many contested views on our cities and urban regions. Australia's legal frameworks for biodiversity conservation are intended to preserve and enhance our heritage while enabling appropriate forms of infrastructure. Hosted in partnership with the Sydney Environment Institute, we hear from Rachel Wormsley from the Environmental Defenders Office, Verena Welsh-Jarrett, an Indigenous heritage expert from Billa Group, and UCIT Law Professor Ed Cousins. Let's start with Dr Gary Cox, introducing our Chair, Professor Rosemary Lester. Um, my name is Dr Gary Cox. Uh, I'm a member of the Henry Halloran Research Trust Advisory Board, and I've been a member of that board since it the Trust first started in 2013. Um, I've got a particular interest in, in this subject. Professionally, I've been involved in environmental impact assessment and the procedures around that. But also, uh, in 2011, I obtained a Master of Laws from the School of Oriental and African Studies in London in environmental, uh, international environmental law. And I subsequently taught in the program uh, on mining law. They seem to like an Australian teaching mining law. Yes. Uh, and I taught mining law uh, from a cross-cultural and human rights perspective. Uh, but enough about me. Uh, I'd like to start with uh, the welcome to country. Um, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the tra traditional owners on the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aurora, Aurora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney Camperdown campus is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever with the Aboriginal custodianship of country. And probably at this moment, I should give an apology uh, because unfortunately, Rowena Welsh Garrett, who was going to do the welcome to country uh, and was going to participate in the panel tonight, has been called this evening to participate in a very important meeting of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council. Uh, while that's very disappointing to us, uh, I I know we all respect and are grateful for the very important advocacy and leadership being undertaken by people like Rowena in a very critical t time in our history in the lead up to the Voice to Parliament referendum. So I want to formally welcome you to the Festival of Urbanism, which obviously is being organised by the Henry Helen Research Trust. So this trust was set up by a very generous bequest by Warren Halloran, who's the son, surprise, surprise, of Henry Halloran. And it's the trust is dedicated to fostering new research in cities and regions and evidence-informed dialogue between research, government, industry and community. And to emphasise this is a multidisciplinary endeavour. So we're now in the 10th year of the Festival of Urbanism and, and we promote this through dialogue and a program of events which has reached out uh, across the nation this year uh, and to include um, speakers from academia, government, industry and the community sector. Uh, 
So, the theme uh, of this festival is contested urbanism. And it won't surprise anywhere, anyone to say the environment is a contested space, a contested discourse. Now, I can remember when I first came to Australia, and I'm showing my age here because Malcolm Fraser was still Prime Minister, uh, and the contested environment uh, issue of the day was, of course, the Franklin Dam in Tasmania, which became a kind of touchstone national issue in the uh, 1983 federal election whereby the uh, Hawke government came into being. Uh, but also more recently, of course, uh, across the world with Extinction Rebellion. I won't take the chair's uh, intro away from her, but just to, to say that this area of contested space is around biodiversity conservation and environmental protection, which is both uh, contested, complex, and very, very topical. So I'd like to uh, introduce the chair for tonight's session, Professor Rosemary Lister. Rosemary is Professor of Climate and Environmental Law at the University of Sydney Law School and a fellow of the Australian Academy of Law. She specialises in climate justice, disaster law, energy and climate law and has published uh, two notable books as well as numerous articles on these themes. But I'd like to just mention two books that especially resonate with me. Uh, we both share an interest in forest carbon, that's another contested area. And so I'd like to recommend a, a very, very uh, scholarly work uh, called Law, Tropical Forests and Carbon that was published in 2013, but still very relevant today. And also is the must-get book which is now in its fifth edition, and it's Environmental Planning Law in New South Wales, uh, where Rosemary was the lead editor. And it's very good that that uh, go-to text, which is incredibly com comprehensive around all dimensions of uh, planning and environmental law, you keep updating it. So thank you for doing that. It's a very uh, major contribution to the field. So with that, further ado, Rosemary, uh, I'll hand over to you. Well, thanks very much, uh, Gary, for that uh, very generous um, introduction. And thanks also to Nicole for inviting me to chair the session um, this evening. Now, I'm just going to make a few introductory remarks before I hand over to the panel. And so I guess that what I want to do is to just uh, reflect on what is contested and what is not contested with regard to environment. Um, and I want to start with something which is most definitely not contested. And that is that we have twin crises that we are facing right now. And that is the global boiling crisis um, and, and also the crisis of biodiversity loss. Now, in, as you can see here, on the 13th of, of September 2023, the US National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration released this graph which shows that the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was higher in September than ever before. 350 parts per million is the safe level of CO2 in the atmosphere, 
where it's uh, the, the concentration which is correlated with a 1.5 degree increase in global temperatures. So, so that is the, the global um, boiling point. And in fact, James Hansen, who some of you may follow, he's generally regarded as the grandfather of climate science, has also reported that this is the hottest global temperatures that we've experienced in an El Nino year. So the biodiversity crisis is, is such. Um, reporting in 2019 in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science, since the rise of human civilization, 83% of wild mammals have been lost. 83%, um, 80 percent of marine mammals, 50% of plants, and 15% of fish. And so this is cause for thought. Now, what is also not contested, in my view, is the complete recorded failure of biodiversity legislation and also governmental action on the environment in Australia. So we have the 2021 Samuel Review, um, the, the State of the Environment Report, sorry, the State of the Environment Report, which found that many species and ecosystems are increasingly threatened by changing um, environmental conditions, while multiple and cumulative impacts amplify threats to the environment. Over the past five years, abrupt changes in ecological systems have been recorded and noting, yet, Australia currently lacks a framework that delivers holistic environmental management as between legislative and institutional national, state and territory systems. We then come to the August 2013 Ken Henry Review of the Biodiversity Act in New South Wales. The failure of the Act to achieve its principal purpose is contributing to the continuing deterioration of the environment. This impacts the well-being of all citizens of New South Wales, particularly Aboriginal people and community for whom the loss of biodiversity presents as a loss of cultural integrity. More evidence, the Audit Office of New South Wales in 2019 stated that Australia's biodiversity crisis is driven largely by land clearing. And it found the clearing of native vegetation on rural land is not effectively regulated and managed. The process supporting the regulatory framework, the processes are weak, and there is no evidence-based assurance that clearing is carried out in accordance with approvals. Moving on then to the Royal Commission into the 2018-2019 Murray-Darling Basin crisis, there is no sensible prospect whatever of the goal of sustainability being met, writing further that the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and the Commonwealth Government, instead of trying to fix the sustainable diversion limit beyond which key environmental values would be compromised, they appear to have set out to gauge the limit of sectional or political tolerance for a recovery amount. The story is unedifying. 
to the lasting discredit of all those who manipulated the processes to this end. Now, this is something that I have been researching for the past 27 years. So what I find is not contested is the influence which neoliberalism has had and the deliberate undermining of effective legislation which has followed. So I'm all too familiar as an environmental lawyer with the campaign of deregulation that has been waged by successive governments at the federal and at the state levels. And what governments keep telling us is that we need to cut green and red tape. Why? Because we need to reduce the burden and the cost of environmental regulation on business. And this is all couched in the language of regulatory reform. So what is neoliberalism? I'm only going to address the first point. The academic literature on neoliberalism has burgeoned since the global financial crisis. So I've read extensively about that. I like this quote from Venu Gopal. Neoliberalism, and I say in Australia, is an economic policy agenda encompassing a radical laissez-faire economic policy experiment. That's all it is which tightly delimits the role of the state in regulating economic activity and also authoritarian capital, where social actors, policies, and material interests are fused together in the interests of politically powerful elites while shaping a freer trading market order. And what I note is that even the economists are calling time. And I want to move to jo Joseph Stiglitz, who has won a Nobel Prize for his work on economics, and what he said in 2019 in his book, People, Power and Profits, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent, the promises of neoliberalism are seen for what they are, self-serving platitudes or lies. We got our economics wrong, we got our politics wrong, we got our values wrong. We forgot the economy is supposed to serve our citizens and not the other way around. Balance must be restored between moral turpitude and materialism. We must give a place to both, to both individual and collective initiative and well-being and exhort individuals and society generally to behave in a way that reflects our higher values and aspirations. And I believe that environmental protection is one of those higher values to which we aspire. And so, in conclusion, before handing over to the panel, after 27 and a half years of research in environmental law at the University of Sydney Law School, my conclusion is that biodiversity conservation legislation has been corrupted by the influence of neoliberalism and as such has ultimately provided a license to destroy. Now, in any case, as the Henry Review states, since the New South Wales Act 2016 was legislated, 
global ambition has moved beyond biodiversity conservation to a nature positive framing that emphasizes the need to repair past damage and to take urgent action to halt and reverse biodiversity loss, putting nature on a path to recovery so that thriving ecosystems can support future generations. And so with that, I now move to our eminent um, panel. And our first speaker is going to be uh, Ed Cousins. Ed Cousins is an associate professor at the law school, a very good colleague of mine. Ed is an expert in international environmental law, including in biodiversity and cultural heritage. He has published very widely in these areas, and he's a co-author with me on that New South Wales um, planning and environmental law. I'm also going to introduce our next speaker, Rachel Wormsley, so that the speakers can just um, follow one another. And Rachel, as I said in the lobby to someone, is just a complete legend, right? Just in general. Um, Rachel is at the Environmental Defender's Office, and um, Rachel regularly writes submissions to government. Whatever issue government is dealing with, Rachel will write the most amazing submission. And as I'm sure I've told Rachel before, I know that my students have plagiarised when they all just write in their essays Rachel's submissions, right? And I have to say, just remember, P.S., you don't do that. As brilliant as they are, you could have got an HD, but don't do that, right? So Rachel um, has been listed in the Best Lawyers of Australia list, and um, she spearheads all of the national law reform work at the EDO and serves on many government and non-government advisory committees. So it's really an enormous pleasure not only to have Ed and Rachel as my colleagues, but to now welcome them to the podium. Okay, hello people. Um, my name is Ed Cousins. Um, I know it's spelt a little strangely, but it's just cousins as in brothers and sisters. Um, the photograph on this slide um, I took two days ago in the Kurungai um, Park on the edge of Sydney. It's a goanna eating a sugar glider. The sugar glider was not terribly happy about the situation, but I popped it in here as a reminder that nature is, in our eyes at least, brutal. It's hard enough for wild animals to survive in their natural environments without the added pressures that we put on them. Just let that slide pass for a moment. I thought I'd also, at the beginning, just use this as an example of just how complicated biodiversity is. We have a tendency to sit here at the beginning of the 21st century and say, well, we have an understanding of what nature needs and of what biodiversity requires. We, we understand the relationships between species. And we look back on people writing or researching or making decisions 50 or 70 or 100 years ago and say, well, they didn't know very much at all. But in 50 years' time, people are going to look back on us and say, well, you know, we were fumbling in the dark. And 
This is, a, I think, a lovely example. Um, eucalyptus dieback. What happens in parts of New South Wales especially is that the species of honey eater called a bell miner farms insects called psyllids, drives other birds out of the area, protects the psyllids. The psyllids, the insect in the middle, secretes a sugary substance called a lerp, L-E-R-P, on its back. The bell miner enjoys eating that and makes sure, make sure it does not harm the psyllid. Noisy miners just gobble up the lerp and the psyllid together. The bell miners protect the psyllids, effectively farm them. But that is a problem because the psyllids then become overabundant. They damage eucalyptus. And it seems that the eucalyptus, even when the psyllids, the bell miners are removed, the psyllids um, are then predated on by other species, eucalyptus don't even recover after that, as far as we can tell at this stage. It's an extraordinarily complicated relationship. And this is not dealing with any um, alien invasive species. These are all Australian species. I just thought it's a good reminder of how complicated it is when we deal with biodiversity. Australia has um, a rather unusual relationship in the environmental field between international law and national law. Because in Australia's core environmental statute, the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, um, the most important international treaties of global scope are incorporated directly into Australian law and given direct effect. Now, those are treaties to which Australia has bound itself and which it is obliged to implement. We also have, on the international plane, goals, targets, overarching strategies, which Australia commits to, but which don't carry the same binding status as treaties. And I'm going to come back to that um, in my last slide, so it's not unimportant here. Now, internationally, the core Statue, the core treaty in the environmental field is the Biodiversity Conservation um, Convention, the CBD. And to give effect to the CBD, its parties, 195 states are party to that treaty, have adopted a series of strategies. So in 2002, they adopted a strategy intended to achieve a significant reduction in biodiversity loss by 2010. That target was not met, to put it bluntly. So what do you do? The parties then went into a second strategic plan, far more ambitious, far more detailed. This one to run from 2011 to 2020 five strategic goals and 20 targets. And Australia embraced this, particularly target 12, to prevent the extinction of threatened species and improve their conservation by 2020. We reached 2020, and in this 
comprehensive summary, it was ascertained that not a single one of the targets had been met. Some sub-targets had arguably been met in part, but essentially the entire second strategy was a dismal failure. So what do we do? When you've, your two successive strategies have failed utterly, there's only one thing for it. You have to adopt a third strategy. That's what we're in the process of doing. We have something called the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, which I'll return to. And this time it'll work. We can be sure. Now, as I said earlier, Australia is unusual in the extent to which it has embraced international law in its national law. The EPBC Act is the core statute at national level. It is approximately 1,200 pages long if you include the regulations. It is endlessly repetitive. It is horrifically tedious. It gives the national government authority over nine matters of national environmental significance in the green text. But the bulk of environmental regulation and management remains in the hands of the states and territories. Now, an internal requirement to this management statute, the EPVC Act, is that it be reviewed formally every 10 years. So the first review was in 2009, and the first recommendation was that the Act should be scrapped entirely. But it hasn't happened. Very few of the recommendations were, in fact, adopted. But we've just had the second statutory review, the second decadal statutory review, the Samuel Review released in late 2020. And building on the lack of success of the Hawke Review, the Samuel Review recommends if not scrapping, then at least substantive and comprehensive reform. The most important recommendation, probably, is the introduction of a set of national environmental standards, which will provide a touchstone against which all other environmental legislation and all projects and developments and decisions can be measured. That's at national level, and it overlaps inside the states in respect to the nine matters of national environmental significance. But it's important also to look at state legislation. And in New South Wales, we have a relatively recent statute, the Biodiversity Conservation Act of 2016. And I would argue this is almost the culmination of a developer-friendly, neoliberal, market-oriented approach. For various reasons, I think we're going to have to work through the few successes and the many failures that are in store for us under this statute before we can look back on it and say, well, let's never do that again. But what the Act does give us is a wonderful opportunity 
to evaluate, to consider what happens. Now that act has just had a review. In August, the Henry Review, which Rosemary referred to, was released. And the Henry Review recommends effectively that the statute be scrapped. Now, that isn't as dramatic as it sounds. Another review of another statute in New South Wales was released at the same time, which effectively said everything's going pretty well. The Henry Review suggests firmly that we become nature positive, which means essentially that we move from managing sustainably to repairing and protecting, taking positive steps rather than being reactive. And to bring it back to the beginning of my presentation, the Henry Review suggests strongly then we look to the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. Unfortunately, that is a very weak document. But the Australian government has agreed to adopt the Nature Positive Plan, and we can hope that the Henry Review will make a difference in New South Wales also. Thanks very much, Ed, and thank you, Rosemary, for the extremely kind welcome. Uh, it's lovely to be here today on Gadigal Country, the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. Uh, thank you for inviting me to join this really important conversation. So I've worked in public interest environmental law for over 20 years now uh, for the Environmental Defender's Office. If you don't know us, we're the, the mob who runs injunctions against Woodside, against forestry, <laughs> some of our latest cases. But we also have outreach, community engagement. We have a Pacifica program and the program I'm lucky enough to lead is the Law Reform and Policy Program. So as I say, in 20 years, it's become really, really clear that the laws in this country are actually failing biodiversity. So at a federal level, a state level and a local level, we need some transformative law reform to actually turn that around. So we've heard from Rosemary and we've heard from Ed about global trends and domestic failings. The Samuel Review of the National Act, the Henry Review of the New South Wales Act, along with the Audit Office, the Natural Resources Commission, many, many parliamentary inquiries that, yes, I have written submissions to, have all confirmed that the failure of current laws to protect and restore our unique biodiversity. So our urban development demands are absolutely growing, but our threatened species lists are also growing, and not just with obscure orchids or odd little frogs, we're actually talking about the genuine risk of koalas becoming extinct by 2050 in the wild. That's to the degree to which our laws are currently failing. So this new hope, the idea of nature positive and a transformative reform for nature positive is, I think, encouraging. It's got potential, but we really need to think this through. Uh, many of you, if you've looked at environmental law, will know the concept of ecologically sustainable, ecologically sustainable development. So ESD has been in our environment laws for decades. And the nature positive is the new ESD. ESD has failed, so nature positive is actually about restoring and prioritising environment. It's really going to be critical 
how nature positive is defined, but it has got the potential to galvanise conservation, restoration, reverse the trajectories of decline and meet some of these global targets that Ed is talking about with the Global Biodiversity Framework and also to national commitments for no new extinctions. It will be critical how this is defined. Uh, will nature positive be for biodiversity what net zero is for climate change? It's a great stamp to put on a company brochure or a government policy or a new subdivision, but will it include enough wriggle room that it actually encompasses a multitude of trade-offs? So critical to this question of trade-offs in contested environments is the use of biodiversity offsetting. So I really wanted to use my seven minutes today to drill down into this a little bit more. The key questions, can biodiversity offsetting really be nature positive, particularly um, can it deliver outcomes in contested urban environments? So the idea of biodiversity offsetting, as you probably know, is that where habitat is destroyed by development in one place, the impacts can be offset by protecting and managing that hab a similar habitat in another place or paying someone else to do this. The concept's been around for a long time, since the 1970s in the US, uh, and offsetting is actually now a prevalent legal policy tool that's used to facilitate approval of a range of developments, including urban developments. Arguments can be made for the offsetting being used to facilitate contra controversial developments, um, but also the developments we absolutely need, the housing developments, the livable connected communities that we want. Where these developments are desperately needed and have unavoidable impacts, at least offsetting gets some funding for biodiversity conservation elsewhere, there are arguments that can be made there. On the other hand, there's actually a dearth of evidence to show that offsetting delivers environmental outcomes and critics abound. So the key questions for forums like this, can we continue to grow our offset biodiversity markets to facilitate urban and other development and be truly nature positive? What safeguards are needed to ensure new nature positive laws don't just repeat the mistakes that we've currently got in our planning laws, our mining laws, our native vegetation laws, and cement the business-as-usual as trade-offs that have happened under the guise of ecologically sustainable development. Happily, EDO has long advocated for some principles and solutions in this area, and it's really heartening to see these principles reflected by the likes of Ken Henry, by the likes of Graham Samuel, when they're, they're actually undertaking the reviews that Ed's just taken us through. So my top 12 hints of what we absolutely need to see to make sure laws are nature positive in terms of offsetting are as follows. The law must recognise some plants and animals are actually simply too rare and cannot be offset. We've got a situation in New South Wales at the moment where pretty much everything is amenable to negotiation and offset. We need red lights, no-go zones, because some offsets simply are not ecologically feasible. Offsets should be a genuine last resort. We need the law to require real measures to avoid minimum avoid and minimise impacts first, and these must be demonstrated. If you then proceed to and have an unavoidable impact, offsets must be required to actually improve biodiversity outcomes. They need to show a net gain, not just no net loss, because if you have no net loss and a species with a trajectory like that, 
All you're doing is helping them plummet, really. Offsets need to be like for like. This is fundamental to the integrity of biodiversity offsetting. The idea that you could trade off Western Sydney koalas for Gunnedah koalas is questionable, but it's actually worse than that. You can, in New South Wales, trade off a completely different species if they're of a higher risk category somewhere else in the state. Like, the rules are not like for like, and so that gives wriggle room when you've got a really, really scarce or endangered entity that's impacted. Anything less than a like-for-like like direct offset. It's not actually an offset at all. We're into the realms of it just being an extinction payment. Offsets should be secured before impacts, not a promise for future offsets. There's a huge time lag, if you think about it, if a development destroys habitat, including, for instance, trees with hollows, then that takes a really long time to ecologically replicate a tree with hollows. That's hundreds of years, notwithstanding nest boxing. But we have the situation again in New South Wales where mines have been approved at Malls Creek at Mount Pleasant, approved on the condition that they will offset the clearing that happens. They clear, they go ahead. We're seven years on, we're nine years on. Those mines have never found an offset. They've never secured an offset. They simply apply to modify their conditions and say, we haven't got that done yet. And so on paper, they're, they're compliant, but the offset does not exist. The idea that a mine could do some future rehabilitation, and that counts, also that has no ecological credibility. Indirect offsets, so that's where you, actually, you don't manage habitat, but you might provide funding for research or education, that should be strictly limited because the focus needs to be on the habitat. Discounting and exemptions from offset requirements that are based on non-ecological considerations, they, need, they should not be permitted. It should be a scientific equation that we're considering here. Benefits should be protected in perpetuity. The impact of concreting is forever, so the, the benefit should also be in perpetuity. Offset actions must be additional to what is already required by law. You shouldn't get points for managing something that you're required to manage already. This is a big issue in Western Sydney for a lot of the offsets that, that are needed out there for the airport, the growth centres. This is a long, continuous story. Offsets must be transparent and legally enforceable. Samuel and Henry, in their reviews, are both scathing of offsets, but both say there needs to be a public register and transparency. Clear monitoring and reporting requirements are needed so we can actually see if outcomes are being delivered. That's the missing piece with offsets, the actual evidence that biodiversity is being recovered and environmental gains are being achieved. That's pretty fundamental if you're claiming a new law is nature positive. And finally, laws should build in mechanisms to respond to climate change and stochastic events. We need laws to be nimble and adaptive so it might be the case that a species or an ecological community, actually we can't offset that anymore because it's just been decimated by a bushfire. We need to be able to have laws that can respond to this. So in concluding my seven minutes, I would say any law that allows offsetting that doesn't meet these fundamental principles for integrity is actually unlikely to be truly nature positive. And as I said earlier, this could be at the risk of greenwashing and not actually delivering the outcomes we so desperately need. So whether it's in a regional plan or a strategic environmental assessment of an urban area, 
a biocertification, uh, rezoning, a new local subdivision, all these tools that you may be familiar with, or for individual assessments that together have cumulative impacts on our urban biodiversity, principles do need to apply to ensure any offsets we have have ecological integrity, that they have legal enforceability, and that they can actually deliver nature positive outcomes. Going back to the title of this session, if we don't have these principles in law, then we will have laws that aren't actually for biodiversity conservation, but they are in fact a license to destroy. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Ed, and also Rachel, for sharing your years and years of research and work and submissions and so on with us uh, tonight. So we did ask the audience whether or not they would want to ask questions of the panel, and I'm just going to put one of the audience's questions to you, and I'm just going to really leave it up to either both or one of you to answer the question. So here's the first question. Does the panel think the wider public understands or engages in environmental decision-making processes? Rachel, would you like to start? I'd love to. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, whoever asked that question. There has been polling by some of the big environment groups who we work with, like ACF, the Australian Conservation Foundation. People really, really do care about the environment. They care about the places they love. They care about a safe climate. In elections, we see the polling saying these issues matter. So there's no doubt that people care. But when you get into how do people engage in environmental decision making, that's much harder. Like for some people, the names of, like the EPBC, as Ed said, is a tortuous and what well, is a horrific and tedious act. Like for the average person, you're not going to read 1, 000, over 1,000 pages of legislation. Statutory reviews happen all the time, inquiries happen all the time. And even the best, like communities with resources, actually find it difficult to engage in environmental decision making. You might have multiple consultations. You might have huge documents out for exhibition. You might be asked for your thoughts on an environmental impact statement that's this high. And you may not be able to engage. So it is a difficult, there is a desire to engage, but it is really difficult. One of the reviews, Ed mentioned the, um, the nature positive plan that the federal government is putting out. They've committed to putting out for exhibition new legislation this year that's going to be nature positive legislation. This is fantastic. We've been working really hard with them. Part of that work is on a community engagement and consultation standard that we want to get embedded in the law. They're saying, yes, this is great. We, we want to get these third party rights, this community engaged in the law. But the other rumour going around at the moment is they're going to launch these bills and these standards for public exhibition on Christmas Eve. Mm, and I don't know about you, but I would always. love to have Christmas break with my family, but that's just a symptomatic of, you know, we get bureaucrats who do reviews, push out these reports, but then expect the, the public to have their say within timeframes. Um, in a certain way, on a website, remote communities, First Nations communities, like how do you actually get that genuine community consultation done so people can actually be engaged early up front in planning processes, obviously where there's land use conflicts, 
the best model is to have early and iterative community, community engagement with the local community right through a project. We're not really seeing that. We see good examples, but again and again, we get the Christmas Eve, here's some new laws, what do you think? Uh, and it's not really working for communities. So I'll just finish by saying one thing. We are doing at EDO, we're working with the Wilderness Society on a project about how to really um, enshrine the rights for access to information, public participation and access to justice in Australian law. So we're working, because there is great interest in how we can do this better. Governments disappoint, always. <laughs> <laughs> and yet we do see progress. Um, governments become so stymied by the multitude <coughs> of different interest groups that push at them from all sides. And politicians are very short working lives. They, they never show, I mean, Australia is quite unique in having a, a national election every three years. Um, some countries have much more stability and you can be sure you know who's going to be in government for the next 20 or 30 years. But whatever the system is, governments inevitably become entrapped in a, a mass of legislation, bureaucracy, vested interests, special interests, and ultimately even corruption. And I think if there's one lesson I've learned about politics in my life, it's that all politicians become corrupt. And what's more important is the voters. That's the core difference between one political party and another, is who's pushing that party in a particular direction. And I think we are seeing change worldwide. One, something we haven't raised today is this concept of rights for nature, the concept of giving nature, giving the natural world inherent value and even legal rights. And we are seeing it happen. It is happening in Australia. There are various initiatives, but not, but not coming from government down. They're coming from people up. We've got to something like the Yarrow River um, legislation in Melbourne, which does effectively provide a form of legal personhood to a river. We see these villains in other states, other countries, we're seeing more. Mountains and rivers in New Zealand, rivers particularly in Southeast Asia, Bangladesh, India, and Sri Lanka, and probably the drivers of um, the, the sort of the high points have been legislation and um, entrenchments in constitutions in countries like Bolivia, Colombia, and Ecuador in Latin America. So we are seeing this move, and it's coming from people. It isn't coming from government down. So we might not think that we're influencing government. We might feel completely helpless to change government. We might sit and chew our fingernails and say, well, why can't they do what they promised they would do? But it's very difficult, but they are doing it. It's, it I think we, we don't realize the impact that we are having. Mm. Yeah, that's it. All right, thanks, Ed. So I think we have time for two short questions. Please keep your questions short um, to the panel. Yes. Um, I guess this is, oh, oh sorry. Um, for upcoming changes in policy, the Nature Repair Act is posed to, well, I guess it's an open question, what's your take on the Nature Repair Act as it stands? 
So for those of you who haven't looked in detail, the Nature Repair Market is a proposal at the federal level to kind of set up a biodiversity market similar to the carbon market, if, if you're familiar with that. This would be a biodiversity market administered by the Clean Energy Regulator. Um, that, and the idea is it would galvanise private investment in uh, conservation so and be able to, you know, a pathway for private landholders to make money from um, land stewardship. So on the pro side of this, if it would galvanise money, that would be fantastic because governments everywhere, environment is underfunded and there's just not enough money going into restoration. Um, there are a number of concerns with the proposed market in terms of governance by the clean energy regulator that hasn't you know, sorted out governance issues from the Chubb review. But, um, and clarity of the market. The biggest issues for me is this was originally a bill proposed by Minister Littleproud under the former government. It's been readapted under this government, but it is a real distraction because what we need from the Samuel review is a review of the national environmental law that sets up the architecture for a new Nature Positive Act with national standards, an independent EPA. We need all that architecture in place then we can have a market as one of the tools in which we can achieve uh, a nature positive outcome. So part of the big reforms that we're all talking about and we're all working on, hopefully not at Christmas, is getting a new law with a national offsetting standard. But for some reason the government has decided to bring forward this nature repair bill, try and pass it in a hurry before getting that architecture and that offset standard in place. So personally I think it should be held off we should get the EPBC reforms done first and then have a market that meets the national standards so we have a coordinated framework for delivering nature positive. I think it's been an error to try and rush this through in advance. I'd like to ask a practical question to Rochelle. Um, you mentioned koalas, you mentioned South West Sydney. The proponent for major development down there at the moment is Lend-Lease and Lend-Lease um, is looking to sell that or, or that particular, or we believe Lend-Lease is looking to sell that particular um, part of the organisation. And so how do you actually put in safeguards in perpetuity for potentially an offshore organisation? And particularly when the limelight is on Lend-Lease in terms of tax matters and other considerations. I'm just looking for a practical thought from you. I'm not sure there is a simple answer to that one, but I, I would again go back to looking at the legal architecture that is in place. What have we got? Um, what principles do we have at the moment? What accountability measures have we got? So when I talk about we want protections in place in perpetuity, then it is legal covenants, legal mechanisms, whether it's land that eventually goes into the National Reserve System or we need those absolutely on land title so it's clear so future owners no matter which company is involved future owners know that pocket of land is an offset site to be conserved in perpetuity it cannot be redeveloped at the moment we have rules of where you can actually offset offset sites like it's got that far from how the core principles should be so it is about making sure you have the legal mechanisms in place to properly protect an area. And again, the transparency of having a public register of offsets so you can see which pockets of land are already offset by whom you have that accountability and transparency. And then you have a role for you know, third party enforcement. You, you need the suite 
of mechanisms to hold companies to account, to hold governments to account, and make sure that the, the biodiversity outcomes are actually delivered, especially for poor koalas. If I may add to that, but it's really a comment on both of the, the two questions. I, I think we're reaching the outer limits of what we can achieve with these offset stroke trade-offs. Um, in one sense, they've been a huge con job. Um, and they only worked um, like a pyramid scheme while you had enough entrance into the market. We don't have those. Now we're scrabbling to find other ways to satisfy them. Um, so now there just aren't suitable pieces of like for land, like land available to replace what you're going to destroy. So instead we're looking at ways to pay into uh, a conservation fund generally. But when that fails, what will we see after that? And at some point, we're going to have to admit that the entire system is not working. OK, one more question. Um, I'm curious with the offsets program. Oh, thanks. I'm curious with the offsets program and with the um, Dam wall raising EIS, it was they were looking at offsetting um, cultural heritage, so indigenous sites which is an absolutely appalling notion. Um, have you seen that happen elsewhere? Is there a precedent for it in New South Wales or Australia or internationally, or is this a new thought bubble of government? There are precedents, unfortunately. I think just it's ridiculous to even think you can offset something as unique as cultural heritage. Like, even offsetting biodiversity, that there's a fungible tradable unit between two different patches is, is ridiculous, but it's even more ridiculous when you're talking about unique cultural heritage. But I was in an offsets workshop the other day and, and we were saying, we were testing this question apparently under the federal law, under EPBC, they have had examples in the past where world heritage values and national heritage values, there have been some small offsets on the values of those places. But I think it is a bit of a nonsense that you can actually offset something as unique as, as heritage. Um, so I was surprised to learn that there have been approvals based on that. But as Ed said, such as the need to just approve things and facilitate things, that you put a stamp saying, oh, it's offset, so it's OK. It, it has been a bit of a con job. And it has made certain developments that should have got a hard no, it's made them approvable. So I think what I'd like to see, instead of these what we've had in, in law is to make developments able to be approved. We've seen standards in offsets weakened and weakened and weakened. Oh, you can't find an offset. OK, try a different species or a different price. Oh, you can't find that. OK, try money into a fund. And it's the government's problem to try and find an offset later. We've, instead of just identifying what's too precious to lose up front and having a law that says, sorry, no, try somewhere else, we have these weakened and weakened and weakened rules. And I think it is time to call that and it is time to put in place some actual red lines, some no-go zones in the law, and then make sure that any options after that are credible and according to those principles, they actually are nature positive, otherwise, otherwise it is greenwashing. Thanks very much, Rachel. So I am going to um, bring the panel to a close, but just before we close, uh, Rachel and Ed, in 30 seconds... You've shared so much of your time with us, but in 30 seconds, if you were to pick one thing that will help us to arrive at nature positive, what would you prioritise? 
I know Ed's That's... going to tell me it's a ridiculous question. No, no, no. Because no, 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 we need everything, <laughs> as we've been talking about. But what would you personally say is the most important intervention that we need? Do you want to go first? I sure. Try. Um, I think that, unfortunately, I think things are going to have to get worse before they get better in the sense that things might look abysmal to us at the moment. But I think we, because things are happening on a global scale, we, we struggle to recognize that. I think we need to see and, and understand everything, how it is all connected, how the bell minor, the psyllid, and the eucalyptus are connected, and then how they connect to every other species in the area, in the country, in the world. And when we can start to understand that and get a, an overall picture, then we might start to, um, uh, we, we might be persuaded to take the concrete steps that are needed. But the sacrifices we're ultimately going to have to make are beyond our current understanding. Thank you, Ed. And Rachel, for the last word. Uh, the one thing I think we need a new national environmental law. We need to hold the government to their commitment. The Nature Positive Act, there'll be a new act. This is it. We've had 20 years of an act that barely addresses climate change. We desperately need that new national act. Once we have new national standards, hopefully that will lift up states and from that we'll actually get the flow through so we can be nature positive. And I'd just like to finish this session by thanking our three speakers and, and just a, a reflection about the uh, sessions in the festival itself. I think there's a, a thread that passes through some of the very different topics around what constitutes effective regulation and particularly what constitutes effective regulation in a, an increasingly political environment that's if not averse to regulation that's effective become is also hostile to that. And I think we had some very salutary and thought-provoking presentations and just reading one of the slides, I don't know whether it's Ed's, uh, Ed's slides, was uh, the environment's become so damaged that we have to move to nature positive and that, that uh, term obviously has issues in itself as Rachel has talked about. Uh, and certainly this area is complex, it's contested, but by God it's urgent. So I'd like to thank uh, Professor Rosemary Lister, uh, Associate Professor Ed Cousins, and Environmental Defender Rachel Wormsley. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.